Okay, we're live, and on today's program, I want to cover uh, several topics, if possible. Uh, real quick, uh, I did have a good question that someone emailed me uh, last time during the program. I did not see it till afterwards. Um, in Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 to 27, uh, why did God curse Ham? Um, that is a, a passage that I think, unfortunately, is... Um, controversial. I don't think there's any reason for it to be controversial. Uh, some have actually tried to say that Ham had some kind of sexual thing going with Noah when Noah was naked and uh, drunk. Um, I think that that's almost certainly not the case. Um, and that as a matter of fact, it was just a Ham who mocked his, his drunk father and uh, that's why God pronounced a curse on him. So, um, th- that he saw the nakedness of, of his father, that, that, that is a term or phrase that's used, saw the nakedness of or uncovered the nakedness can in some contexts in the book of Leviticus refer to relations, but I don't think there's any reason in this context, um, to think that that anything like that happened. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how that would happen with a drunk man. Um, I know that lots, uh, daughters did that with him uh, somehow, but, uh, as I recall, um, he, he drank of the wine and was drunk. This is Genesis nine twenty one, and became uncovered in his tent. Okay. So whatever happened with Lot, you know, cause his daughters got him drunk and then they both became impregnated and gave birth to Moab and Ammon, two of the worst, uh, the progenitors of the two of the worst nations ever. But then, but here, um, he became uncovered. The, the, the thing I think is clear here is that Noah's passed out. Okay. So Ham, the father of Canaan, sees the nakedness of his father, and he tells his two brothers. It's almost like there's mockery going on. You know, look at dad, what a what an idiot. Uh, so that's it. But there there is a uh, a view that that maintains that Ham had some kind of sexual relation with with, with Noah. I don't think there's any reason uh, in the context, and I believe I did address that when uh, I got to this section of of uh, Genesis because that did come up in the commentaries and everything else that I was reading. Okay. So good, good question. Uh, that's why he cursed him was, was because of that. Okay, let me uh, pull up the uh, Westminster uh, shorter and larger catechisms here. Um, there's a uh, yeah. I wanted to go over the issue of the final judgment because I think it's extremely important um, that we have a biblical view of what's going to happen at the final judgment because uh, I've been reviewing uh, some material. Uh, regarding Doug Wilson, because I've been, I'm actually, I was scheduled to do an interview uh, with Back to the Reformation podcast with um, Onig Sayadian is the fellow's name, one of them, and then the other guy is Matthew Rosenblum. Uh, really good guys, really nice guys. I've appreciated them both. They've been a, a real encouragement to me. And I did an interview on, on their podcast about Piper. And um, I will say that John Piper and uh, Doug Wilson are like two of my least favorite subjects <laughs> to talk about. I just, don't uh, don't derive any any real joy from doing that. But I've warned a lot of people, and a lot of people at first, you know, spewed venom at me, and we're all mad and everything, and like, you know, you're just you're a horrible person, blah 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 blah. But then listen a little more carefully and, and looked at stuff a little more carefully and realized, okay, yeah, okay, I see it now. I see the subtleties of speech, and I see what's wrong with this. I'm like, okay, great, wonderful. Um, I've learned over the years not to care. I don't care. 
Um, I will do exposés of individuals like that if I think that the people I'm responsible for might be misled by them. But I'm not really a polemicist, like, professionally. I don't, I don't like, look for stuff to attack or anything like that. I like to just study the Bible and uh, preach and teach and defend it. But if there's a chance, if there's even an outside chance that uh, people could be misled uh, about a very important biblical truth, I will go after that stuff and try to um, put stuff out there that's, that's useful uh, or preach on it or, or whatever. But a number of people have seen the, the Federal Vision uh, playlist that I've got out there. And uh, I've actually corresponded with R. Scott Clark uh, a little bit about that because he's one of the lonely voices that, that have called out Wilson and Piper both. Um, and that, you know, kudos to him for doing that because he uh, um, has been attacked <laughs> pretty viciously uh, by, by folks uh, because he's been willing to do that. But you see, that's the most important thing in the world is the gospel. You know, if you're, you're not willing to go to bat for that, you know, what, what will you defend? Um, so anyway, so I wanted to talk about, uh, the final judgment. The Westminster Larger Catechism has uh, an excellent section on this, and I'd like to look at a few passages, because I think there's a lot of confusion about this, because you get, you're getting all this weird teaching going on today, where, uh, people are saying that, you know, at the final judgment, that's where the reality of your faith is confirmed forensically by the good works and the fruit that you've borne, and, even if it's just, you know, one illustration I heard, uh, even if it's just three little shriveled grapes, that's still enough, you know, and God will look favorably upon that. And I'm like, that's not what what happens at the final judgment. Folks need to think about that for a second here. This is the idea. This is what Piper says, and a lot of uh, folks have followed along with, with this. The idea is that at the final judgment, good works are brought forward because, I mean, Second Corinthians 5.10 uh, uh, says that, you know, we shall all receive uh, good, the, the, from the good or bad that we did at the hand of, we, all, we shall all appear before, before the judgment seat of Christ. And Romans 2, you know, those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality uh, will reap eternal life and th- things like that. But the way that this is often put is there's this confirmation or this uh, vindication of the reality of your faith by your good works. And I just have to ask the question, vindication and confirmation for who? God already knows if your faith is, is divinely given or not. He already knows that because he's the one that gave it to you. He's the one that grants faith. Why would God need to confirm the reality of your faith by your fruit? He doesn't need to do that at all. He already knows everything, okay? When when James chapter 2 speaks about a man is justified by by works and not by faith alone, it's talking about justified in claiming to be a Christian. That's that's what that's talking about. Uh how many times does James chapter 2 say that? Show me and I will show you, me meaning a a human being, and I'll show you another human being. I'm not going to show God. See God, my faith's real. I I did all these works. God already knows. He already knows if your faith's real or not. There's, there's no need for him at the eschaton, at the last judgment, to confirm the reality of your faith. He's all-knowing. And he's the one who grants saving faith. James 2 is talking about the, the justification of a person saying they have faith before people. That's why it says, show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, I can't see the, the psychic act of faith. I can't see if someone is trusting in Christ alone, if they really are relying only on Jesus to get them into heaven or not. I can't see that. But I can see their life. Has it been changed? Are they repentant for their sin? Are they fighting against sin? Are they 
uh, trying to put sin to death and to live under righteousness? Uh, are they doing that? Are they? Do they care about their local church? Um, do they have any interest in the people of God? And you know, that's one thing. I think a lot of folks don't don't realize that, but it's extraordinarily important. You know, the book of First John uh, says this is one of the ways that we know that we're Christians is we we love the brethren. And I would say if you don't you don't have a church, you you don't go to church, or you just can take or leave your church, that's not a good sign. That that's not a good sign that you're a believer at all. Okay, let me find uh, that passage now. Pipeworks is taking a long time to fire up here. Um, how we know. Love the brethren. Let's see. Love the brethren. Oh, yeah. Okay. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of them. Um, yeah, listen. Uh, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He do, who does not love his brother abides in death. That's such an absolute statement. Now, of course, that's not saying you get to heaven by loving the brethren. Okay. <laughs> that's how people who are neonomian, they, they, they add law to the gospel and add, add works to faith in Christ as getting into heaven. See, 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 we're told that we, we know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. So if you don't love the brethren, you can't go to heaven and you get to heaven by loving the brethren. That's not what it says, but it's a sign that you are a believer in Jesus Christ and that you have eternal life, that you've passed from death to life. That's first John three, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. If someone who has no love for their church, and doesn't, they can take or leave going to church or doesn't really care that much about what's going on in the church. That's not a good sign. He who does not love his brother abides in death. It's a pretty absolute way of saying that, isn't it? Okay. Um, so I wanted to go through the, the uh, larger catechism questions here and look at uh, a number of passages of scripture as I think this is extremely important. Okay. So let's look at a uh, question. Um, I believe it's question 88. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, here, here we go. Question 88. It's like 88, 89, and 90 of the larger catechism. Okay, the, I, I can't stress enough how important these questions are. I mean, think about this question. What shall immediately follow after the resurrection? Um, all ears and eyes should be tuned in. Because what immediately follows after the resurrection of the dead, meaning Christ comes back, the dead are raised and are summoned forth before the judgment seat of God. Pretty important. That's going to be a pretty important moment. It's going to be the most important moment um, in a human being's life. Listen, immediately after the resurrection shall follow the general and final judgment of angels and men. The day and hour whereof no man knoweth that all may watch and pray and be ever ready for the coming of the Lord. Okay, I'll just listen to a few of these uh, passages. Uh, for God, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and then it goes on to give more warnings about false teachers, uh, me- meaning angels themselves. Angels will be will be judged as well as men. That's really what that passage is, is emphasizing there. In fact, let me pull that up in the rest so you can get the full context. Second Peter 1, or yeah, Second Peter 1, uh, whoops, 2 Peter 2, verse 4 and following. Uh, 2 Peter 2, 4. 
and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Man, Lot it was, it must have just been such a, a big meanie. And I'm sure that all of those victims in Sodom and Gomorrah just didn't feel comfortable telling Lot what was really wrong and why they were so hurt that they had to act the way they did. Please. Lot was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. It was painful for Lot to live in those cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, where people were so ungodly and so uh, sick. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So the destruction of the entire world and the flood of Noah and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is an example, according to the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 2, 6, an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So those who are ungodly, they need to be reminded of the flood, the flood of Noah, and they need to be reminded of the fact that God rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah and killed everyone in those cities for their sexual immorality, for their homosexual sin. So God is going to do this to angels and men. So the judgment is going to be a judgment of angels and men. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world. So you see angels and men are both named in Second Peter chapter 2 as going to be attending the general judgment at the end of all things. Okay, So it's not just a judgment of mankind. It's also a judgment of the angels. Okay, um, okay the next question. So what shall be done to the wicked at the day of judgment? And what shall be done to the righteous at the day of judgment? Okay, so those are two real important questions. Notice that there's only those two categories. Okay, just like the parable of the sheep and the goats. He should put the sheep on his, on his, uh, on his right, and, but the goats on, on his left. And he will say to the sheep, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, and so on and so forth. So there's, there's two groups. There's the sheep and there's the goats. There's the believers and there's unbelievers. There's wheat and there's tares. There's the righteous and the wicked. There's the godly and the ungodly. Okay, scripture doesn't acknowledge uh, any other categories for humanity. We're either saved or we are lost. We either believe in Christ or we do not believe in Christ. So what's going to happen to the wicked? Those, those who die in their sins, unregenerate, um, and they're, they're dressed in the, the tattered filth of their own sin um, or their own pretenses at self-righteousness. So listen carefully. Here's what's going to happen to the wicked on the day of judgment. At the day of judgment, the wicked shall be set on Christ's left hand. Okay, that's Matthew 25, 33. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. You know, we know from the end of that parable that uh, he will say to the ghosts, Depart from me, you cursed ones, into everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink, and so on. The wicked shall be set on Christ's left hand, and, listen to this, is a very, very important part, upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences shall have the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them okay think of romans 2 15 speaking of the gentiles that didn't have the law in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when according to my gospel god will judge the secrets of men through jesus christ so the gentiles uh they know in their heart of hearts that they're sinful they know 
that their conscience is ruined by sin. That's why so many uh, forms of, of man's religions have the concept of holiness and sacrifice and they sacrifice different things to try to appease the gods because of their sinfulness. Uh, at least people have done that in the past today. It's almost like the concept of sin has just gone altogether. Um, but men know in their heart of hearts, because the law of God is put there, that they have done wrong in the sight of their creator. They know that. And at the judgment, it's going to be made very clear to them upon clear evidence, full conviction of their own con- con- consciences, they're going to have the fearful sentence uh, but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. He will say to those on his left, Matthew twenty five forty one, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, so it will be a just sentence of condemnation. So it's the opposite of justification. All right, so at the final judgment, at the final judgment, there will be either a pronouncement of condemnation, or pronouncement that were justified before God. Okay, those are the only two verdicts that, that there are. Now, when the wicked appear before God, those that died in their sins and didn't know Christ and, and walked uh, in the ways of their flesh and followed after sin, um, or maybe they went to church and, and cleaned up themselves a little bit, um, but never truly came to Christ, never really did let go of sin and repent of it and, and put their faith in Christ alone, they will have the just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. I think that... Um, the thing that gives me the chills, uh, my father used to tell me this all the time. He said, son, I think on the day of judgment, there will probably, probably be a lot of surprises. There will be a lot of surprises. People we thought we'd never see there will be there. Um, and a lot of people we thought for sure we'd see there won't be. Just remember, it's a just sentence. Whoever's condemned at the last day, it's because they showed up. And at no point were they truly relying only on Jesus Christ for their salvation. They, they were mixing that with something else. They had been misled and deceived. Um, and because they were not taught by God, they were never truly effectually called by God. They, they didn't put their faith in Christ alone. Um, they may have said that. They, I mean, there's lots of ways you can say, I, I believe only in Jesus Christ, only in Christ, it's Christ alone, but still be trusting in your works. Especially if you think that belief means obedience to the law or something like that, uh, which is what a lot of the Federal Vision um, individuals did. As I'm preparing for this interview next uh, Thursday, I've been... Uh, Looking at some of that stuff again, I was listening to myself, listening to old podcasts where I read stuff from the RPCUS report, I think it was, that on the Federal Vision. And their subtleties of speech are, are really upsetting to listen to, uh, just reading that report again. But they will be condemned on the Day of Judgment, and justly so, because they're be, they'll be in their sins. They won't have the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon them in their account. And thereupon shall be cast out from the favorable presence of God and the glorious fellowship with Christ, his saints, and all his holy angels into hell, to be punished with unspeakable torments, both of body and soul, with the devil and his angels forever. Okay, fearful stuff there. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, Paul wrote... Um, the letters to the church in Thessalonica, if you look at Acts chapter 17 and see the way that church started, it was, it was started in the crucible of persecution. It was a, it was a painful church uh, when it was given birth to, and, but it was pure though. I think that being born in fire like that, it really made that church pure. And Paul said that when he heard how they were doing, they were doing great. They were walking with the Lord and, and he encouraged them. Don't worry about, you know, people that have been murdering, uh, your friends, your, your Christian friends and like killing them. And don't, don't worry about that. Here's how he encourages them. 
Okay, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. <laughs> He's basically saying, don't worry about your enemies. God's going to send them all to hell. Now, yes, of course, we pray for the salvation of, our, of people that hate us because we're Christians. And we pray for their repentance. But Paul encouraged them, you know, don't, don't worry. God's going to send them all to hell. And uh, you don't need to, to be concerned about that. God's going to take care of it. In fact, let me back up a little bit here. I want you to hear the fuller context. This is a long sentence. Okay. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Man. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. You know why that church was like that? They, they per- per- persecuted together. If you're persecuted together, you're, you're bound together. You love each other. You're very thankful. Very thankful for all your friends. <laughs> If you're persecuted together, he's like, your, your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Second Thessalonians 1, 4. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Paul's like, we boast about you. We tell people in all the other churches that we go to, man, you should see this church in Thessalonica. These people are just, they're amazing. They've been persecuted so much. We were only able to be there for about maybe six Sabbath days, and but we preached Christ and preached the gospel and got them grounded as much as we could in just a short period of time. And I've written them two two letters now. You know, it's real basic theology. And you know, the reason First Thessalonians four is about uh, the um, the coming of Christ, and those who are are asleep will rise first. Those who have died in Christ will rise first. Is he he wants them to know? Yeah, your friends that were murdered by Jews and others and other persecutors, they haven't missed out on the second coming. They will come uh, and meet you in the air if, if the Lord Jesus comes back in our lifetime. Okay? So he's just excited about this church in Thessalonica. I'm so excited. You guys have so much patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. You hear what he's saying? It's righteous for God to get them back. I'm going to repay those that trouble you, and it's right for God to do it. And to give you who are troubled rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in the saints and to be admired among those who believe. Okay, so he's telling them, don't, you know, take heart, your enemies uh, are going going to go to hell. When Jesus comes back, he's going to take vengeance upon them. And so they were supposed to be encouraged by that. We normally wouldn't think of being encouraged by such a thing. I mean, we would be like, no, no, no. We sh- all we should do is pray for them. And certainly we do. And Christians have a very long history of praying for their persecutors and praying uh, for those that hurt them. But for those that do that and they die unrepentant, then they that means they died our enemies and they never really were our brothers. We should have compassion on people that, that are like that. Uh, but those that are determined to try to overthrow the cause of Christ, those that are determined to try to hurt the Christian church, those that are determined to try to kill people and hurt people, it's a righteous thing. It is a righteous thing for God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. So don't worry about them. They're going to be punished in hell forever. Everlasting destruction, it says there. Okay? And, yeah, it's, it's pretty rough stuff. So that's what happens to the wicked on the day of judgment. The wicked... 
Um, all of the evidence is in. They are in their sins. And God justly pronounces the sentence of condemnation upon them. They are cast out of the favorable presence of God and the glorious fellowship with Christ, his saints, and all his holy angels into hell to be punished with unspeakable torments, both of body and soul, with the devil and his angels forever. Okay? So that's, that's the first group. Um, the, the wicked are set on Christ's left hand, and then they are condemned because the evidence is in. They did not keep God's commandments and laws, and they're sent to hell forever. Okay, now, question 90. And this is such a great answer. I've always just loved this. What shall be done to the righteous at the day of judgment? You see, that's how um, the, the two groups are, are characterized. Those that are righteous and those that are wicked. Now, does that mean, yeah, well, when a Christian, to get to heaven, you have to be perfectly righteous. It's just, that's not what it's talking about. Those who have been declared righteous, those who are reckoned righteous. But there's also that real transformation. God makes us better. Uh, and we do take those beginning steps of obedience. As we'll see, They don't; those new steps of obedience don't save us. They play no role whatsoever in getting us into heaven or anything like that. Um, but the those that go to heaven are, are called the righteous. Yeah. Now listen to, to the answer. At the day of judgment, the righteous being caught up to Christ in the clouds. And that's 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. Uh, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And the next verse there says, therefore comfort one another with these words. Okay, they shall be set on his right hand and there openly acknowledged and acquitted. They will be openly acknowledged and acquitted. In other words, Christ will, will say, these are mine. These are my children. Whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven, Matthew 10, 32. So they will be openly acknowledged to be God's people, Christ's sheep, and acquitted. What does that mean? Acquitted is a legal term because this is a judgment and God is the judge of all the earth. They will be either condemned or acquitted. Okay? If a person is acquitted, what does that mean? What does acquitted mean? It means that they're declared not guilty. That they are not guilty. Okay? And then the next point here, they shall join with him in the judging of reprobate angels and men. I remember reading that for the first time, wondering, huh? And then you see it, it's right there in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? There in 1 Corinthians 6 is a prohibition against uh, Christians suing each other in secular courts. Meaning, you should be able to, to settle your disputes before Christian people. Um, because, after all, we're going to judge the world. We're going to participate in the judging of reprobate angels and of men. Okay, So once we're openly acknowledged and acquitted, join with God in, in the judging of reprobate angels and men, and then we shall be received into heaven. Okay, So this is, this is one of the, the key points here. If you're going to say you are reformed, meaning, it, to, to me... If you say, I'm Reformed, that means you hold to one of the Reformed confessions and say, this is my creed. This is what I believe the Bible teaches. If a person is set on the right hand of God on the day of judgment and they are acknowledged to be one of Christ's sheep, one of God's people, and are acquitted, meaning no legal charge of sin can be brought against them because Paul says, uh, uh, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? No one can condemn because Christ has already been condemned for them. So they're acquitted of all charges. And then they shall be received into heaven. 
Okay, where where's this reformed thing about the eschatological vindication of our faith by fruit? It's not part of reformed theology, and it's not part of reformed theology because it's not part of scripture. It's not part of the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible about a final judgment that confirms the reality of your faith by the fruit it has borne, and then you're saved through that fruit. There's nothing, nothing of the kind in Scripture about that. Okay? They shall be received into heaven. So once you're acknowledged and acquitted, you're going to heaven. You get into heaven. Where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery. That's like the great part there. It's wonderful. I'm very thankful to God. Like, I could not be more thankful that I'm justified before the Lord, that I will be acquitted on the day of judgment because Christ died for me and because his righteousness was imputed to my account so that I, I'm seen as though I kept the covenant of life perfectly. But I can't wait for that part, the part where you're freed from all sin and misery, where it's all gone forever. And Revelation fourteen thirteen, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. They'll be freed forever from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joys, made perfectly holy and happy both in body and soul, and in the company of innumerable angels and uh, saints and holy angels but especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. And this is the perfect and full communion which the members of the invisible church shall enjoy with Christ in glory at the resurrection and day of judgment. That's beautiful. Now that's the last question in the whole section of the larger catechism on what man is to believe concerning God. And the next section is our duty, uh, what duty God requires of man. Okay. Uh, let me see over here on the channel. There's Paul Garvey and Luke Warman No More. Howdy, howdy. Rob Gibbs. Um, Phil Waters. Yeah, I've seen you guys. There's Art. Good to see you, Art. Give uh, my love to Elizabeth. And New Reformation Apologetics. I think we've maybe corresponded a little bit. Um, I recognize that one, too. Uh, fruit is for people to prove they are of God to men, not God. Exactly. That's that's the part of the whole thing that is so weird to me. Is um, why Why would there be... At the final judgment, um, a vindication of the reality of your faith. A vindication to who? God already knows everything. And you certainly don't need to vindicate or, or justify your profession of faith before any any human beings on the day of judgment. What what point is that? What what point would that serve? Because they're um, uh, they're they're not going to judge you. <laughs> okay, it's it's God who judges us. Okay, fruit is for people to prove that they are of God. To men, not God. God judges the heart. We as humans cannot fully search a man's heart, so we judge the fruit. Exactly. And that's what James chapter 2 is talking about. Okay. Uh, I'd like to, real quick here, let's let's look at the Westminster Confession. Um, real quick, chapter 16 of Good Works. One of the most important chapters, especially for our time, we have so many errors and so much false teaching going on. Uh, on the subject of good works and how they function um, in the life of a Christian. So listen to uh, what it says here, Westminster Confession 16.1. Good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal, or upon any pretense of good intention. Okay, that, that ought to go without saying, but it, it really doesn't. Because there's a long history to Christians doing all kinds of things that are made up, that have no warrant in scripture, but thinking they're good. Taking a pilgrimage somewhere, just, that's not a good work in the sight of God. 
um, going and looking at uh, some femur from some uh, dead saint somewhere, uh, or go looking at, uh, looking at a tooth from John the Baptist or something, or going into a monastery, uh, or living on a pole out in the wilderness like some of those early monks did. There's nothing in Scripture. It doesn't matter how zealous you are. It doesn't matter uh, what your good intentions are. Good works, the only thing that counts as good works are the things that God has commanded in his word. And we can't make up stuff and call it a good work. Only God can tell us that. Okay, these good works are done uh, done in obedience to God's commandments are, now I love this, the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And it cites James 2.18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Okay? Uh, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. I had a guy, um, apparently some kind of neonomian, saying faith, faith you know, is, is completed uh, by works. Really what that's saying is that faith is, is shown to other men to be legit, to be fulfilled, uh, to be real, uh, by works. It's not that, well, it's lacking something and then it's supplemented. This guy actually used the word supplemented. Works supplement our faith so that we're saved or something. I'm like, no, it's not what James 2 is saying at all. So what are good works? They are fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. Okay, so in that sense, our works justify our profession of faith. Justify our saying, I have faith. Okay, let me get my uh, sip of coffee here. And by them... Believers manifest their thankfulness. A theologian once said, If grace is the essence of salvation, then gratitude is the essence of ethics. If grace is the essence of salvation, gratitude is the motivating force behind ethics, behind doing what's right and obeying God. Okay, they manifest their thankfulness to God. Okay, there was a passage, it's actually not cited here in the Westminster Scripture Proofs. I was directed to it by... Um, the Heidelberg Catechism long ago, and I made sure I always was aware of the reference, 2 Corinthians 4.15, uh, is a really important passage because I remember um, someone bought me a copy of Future Grace by John Piper and I started reading it, and right out of the gate, he's attacking uh, gratitude as the uh, motivating force for a, a godly life, and I thought, man, he's he really is attacking this. He says, it's not gratitude for looking back on what Christ has accomplished. It's faith in future grace. That's the, the way he puts it over and over again. It's faith in future grace. Faith in future grace. And I'm thinking, no, it's thankfulness for what Christ did. It's not, it's not faith in future grace as if God will keep me getting better and better until I'm better enough to get to heaven or something like that. It's looking back on the finished work of Christ. In fact, we have a sacrament that, that um, has us do that. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of what? It's not faith in future grace. It's faith in his finished work in the past. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4.15. Let me back up a little bit and get some more context. Okay, verse 13. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you, for all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Now, this is an explicit passage. Okay? Grace, charis, that term charis. Grace, having spread through the many, 
would cause the giving of thanks. Eucharistion. Okay, that's where you get the word Eucharist. The giving of thanks um, to abound to the glory of God. In other words, gratitude. What is thanksgiving? Gratitude. Thankfulness and gratitude are the same thing. You could translate that. I mean, in fact, let's see. Eucharistion. There in Bower Docker Art and Gingrich. Um, I don't know, actually cites that. Uh, yeah. Perfect. The expression, as it's used in 2 Corinthians 4.15, the expression or or content of gratitude. What does grace cause? Gratitude. To abound. To the glory of God. What motivates a godly life? Thankfulness. Gratitude. For the finished work of Christ. That's what it's all about, is that. Grace gives rise to gratitude, and gratitude is what motivates us to be godly. Okay, it's not what John Wesley said. It's not fear of punishment and hope of rewards or anything like that. It's thankfulness for the finished work that Jesus Christ did. Okay, so, hey, chorus, grace, um, pleonasasa, having spread dia to pleonon, pleonon, through the many, okay, paris, you say, would cause thanksgiving unto the glory of God. Aestain doxan to theu. What does grace cause? Gratitude. Grace causes gratitude. It's not faith in future grace. It's thankfulness for the accomplishment of Christ in the past. Not what he's going to do in the future, but what he did 2,000 years ago at the cross. And that causes thanksgiving, gratitude, to abound to the glory of God. Okay, so that's another thing from the Westminster Confession there, straight out of the word of God. Okay, we, uh, we manifest our thankfulness. Good works that we do in obedience to God's commandments, we show our gratitude to God by those things. We evidence a true and lively faith. We strengthen our assurance, it says there. First uh, John 2, 3. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. I love how simple John's writings are. I mean, you know, when you st- first start studying Greek in seminary, the first thing they have you do is translate John. Because John wrote in, in real low-level terms. He wrote so that like anybody could read and understand it. Okay? We, we know we've come to know Christ if we keep his commandments. Okay? I, I mean, someone who says, I know Christ, but does not keep God's commandments, has no interest in holiness, um, is that person really a Christian? No, of course not. Someone who has no concern for holiness, oh, see, you're, you're a neonomian. You must think that we're saved by good works. No, I'm not saying that at all. At all. Good works that we do are not what saves us. They're simply evidence and fruit of a true and lively faith. And by them, we manifest our gratitude, our thankfulness. By those good works, we strengthen our assurance. We edify the brethren. We, we use our gifts in the local church to serve and love one another. We, we shoulder one another's burdens. We adorn the profession of the gospel. We stop the mouths of adversaries and glorify God by our good works, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end eternal life. Okay, that, that's beautifully written and it summarizes scores of passages. It's right on the money. They, those good works do not save us in any way, shape, or form. Okay, just let me see. What, there's some activity in the channel over here. Oh, there's Steve Falling from New Hampshire. Yes, I saw the, the pictures. The fall colors just look glorious. Well, actually, we went to Natural Bridge uh, State Park Resort in Kentucky uh, yesterday. I went there with four of my kids, and it was just beautiful. 
And it was, the weather was perfect when we climbed up to the mountain or climbed up to the top of the cliffs up there and walked over the bridge and it was great. Then you see these clouds off in the distance and one of my children says, I think it's going to rain. I'm like, the forecast said it wasn't going to rain. And it, it just, like the, the windows of heaven opened and it just soaked us. And I had to run and get the car when we got down from the mountain. We were walking down all these slippery steps and rocks. Nobody slipped or fell or anything. Went and got the car, drove it around to the lodge, and they hopped in the car. And as soon as we drove out back into the out from under the overhang, it immediately stopped raining. <laughs> so it was like, so as long as we were outside, I felt like Charlie Brown, like it's just a rain cloud following me. Okay. Um, but the fall colors were just beautiful. They were absolutely beautiful. Okay, let me put, press on here. I love this. Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ, and that they may be enabled thereunto, because of the graces they have already received, uh, beside the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yet are they not hereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty, unless upon a special motion of the Spirit, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. In other words, it's not like, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't feel a Holy Spirit liver shiver, so I don't need to be, I don't need to um, be gracious and forgiving towards my wife today, because I, I didn't get a special prompting of the of the Spirit or any, or something like that. That's not it at all, and we should never be that way either. Okay, um, real important part here. Now listen, they who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to supererogate, and that's a, a term that's a direct shot at Catholicism, because uh, Rome believes in what they call the, the treasury of merit, the thesaurus meritorum, where the excess merit of Christ, Mary, and the saints is stored. So they think that saints actually not only fulfill the, the law of God perfectly, they actually went above and beyond it. And their excess merits uh, can be dulled out through indulgences and wearing brown scapulars and fun stuff like that. But... The confession following scripture is pointing out the greatest, most godliest person who ever existed, who got as far in sanctification as a sinful person can possibly get. They are so far from being able to super arrogate, to go above and beyond and to do more than God requires as that they fall short of much in which much, which in duty they are bound to do. So the godliest person, most selfless, patient person you've ever met still falls very far short in what they're bound to do in doing their duties. Okay, now here's a, another key point. I wish that people who said they're reformed actually believe this. Many, many apparently don't. We cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God. I always wondered, why do they add that? They can't merit pardon of sin or eternal life. I mean, if your sins are pardoned, don't you have eternal life? I, I, my impression is that the Westminster Divines are anticipating other ways of putting it. Oh, we're not saying that you can merit pardon of sin, but we are saying that you do merit eternal life. So they just throw that in there. <laughs> they just throw that in there. Um, pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come. In other words, folks, God, God's holiness is the most dangerous attribute that he has when it comes to us. And I mean that. Dangerous. It's a dangerous attribute. It's the reason we're in so much trouble with God. He's not only holy, but he's also just. 
And so if justice is not satisfied, we're lost. If the righteous requirement of the law is not met by a righteousness that is imputed to our account by an act of obedience of preceptive righteous obedience to the commandments of God that we don't keep, uh, then we're going to be damned. We're going to be lost forever. We'll, we'll be sent to hell. Hey, listen, because of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and our unprofitable servants. And there they're quoting um, directly from Jesus there, um, directly from that uh, parable uh, in Luke 17, verse 10. We're unprofitable servants. We've only done our duty. And because as they are good, they proceed from his spirit. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. If you think your fruit, even if you're so humble, you say, oh, I've only got three shriveled little grapes to present to God on the day of judgment. Um, you want to die trusting in Christ alone for everything be thankful for the progress you made in your christian life don't rely upon that to save you because it can't your good works cannot even your best works cannot merit pardon of sin or eternal life or an entrance into heaven they can't get you welcomed into heaven and here's another part really 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 important notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through christ their good works are also accepted in him. That is one of the most important distinctions in this whole debate and all the controversy. Hey, hey, dad, just saw this was on, says someone here. Is that, is that Lily? I hope so. The persons being accepted and their works being accepted. Listen, I as a person am accepted before God in Jesus Christ because I'm united to Christ by faith alone. His righteousness is imputed to me. His cross work is accepted by the Father as the full payment for all my sins. I as a person have been accepted. The persons of believers are accepted through Christ. My good works are also accepted in Christ. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Meaning what? All the passages about appearing before the judgment seat of Christ, that's not meant to strike terror into our hearts. That's not, that's not meant to make us go, oh, I hope I make it. I hope I've done enough good works to get into heaven or, or anything like that. They're there to encourage us. God will reward even our sin-stained good works with his grace and, and with, um, with reward in some way. Okay? All right, um, let's press on here. One more. Works done by unregenerate men. Yeah, that, that's, that last point is, is another soul-stirring one. It's like, even if they're good because they don't proceed from a heart of faith, um, their sin, uh, and just increase their condemnation. And they're condemned even more if they neglect to do them. Okay. All right. Okay, I'm going to switch gears pretty, pretty hard here. Man, we're at 46 minutes. My goodness. Um, I wanted to share something. Um, I, I've seen some videos lately and I don't want to get into like names and stuff. Cause this is a, this is a problem that I think is, is out there <clears throat> and it's, it has to do with the use of profanity and cussing and things like that. And there, there are individuals that have videos out there and, and, uh, talk about, well, the prophets, um, in the old King James version, they use the word whore a lot 
And yeah, the the uh, the primary illustration that God uses to describe His relationship with His church is marriage. And so, when the church is unfaithful, it's the church is called a whore. Israel is very often called a whore or a prostitute. That uh, uh, noun zona zona means uh, a prostitute or a harlot. Okay, and um, zana the the verb means to to uh, to act like a whore, to to be a whore or a prostitute in your in your dealings. Now. The word whore that was used in 1611 in the King James Version, it really, it was more, more really a technical translation. That, that is what zana means. That is what zona means, a, a whore or a prostitute. Um, typically, more, more modern English uh, versions will translate it as harlotry. They, they engaged in harlotry. Uh, whereas the King James will say they went a whoring around, a whoring. They'll use that verb. We don't really use that as much today, but words like that, whore, um, you know, damnation, uh, breast, and things like that. Guys like to point out, well, these these are biblical words, and you better not have a problem with us saying them. Well, certainly, I don't. I don't have a problem with that. But recently, a guy used the, the expression bull blank in a sermon and then tried to say, well, Paul uses the word scubala uh, in Philippians chapter 3 uh, from the, from the uh, term scubalon. And certainly, yeah, the term means excrement. It means dung. It means basically scubalon means rubbish. Uh, something that is really good for nothing except to be thrown out with the trash. Um, it can also be translated as dung or excrement. And I think that that's, that's probably the best way of translating it there. I think Paul is trying to be as vivid as possible. However, however, Paul's not cussing. Now, the Holy Spirit of God is wise enough that he, he gave us a generality in Ephesians chapter 4. Okay, so let's look at this. Let's do a little exegesis here. Let's, let's look at the text uh, of Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> now, it says, let no unwholesome word. Now, the, the term that's used there, sar, sarpas, means rotten or worthless. Okay, it's also a term that's used by Jesus when he refers to good trees and good fruit, or uh, bad trees and bad fruit. The term bad is translated as bad. Uh, sarpas means bad, rotten. A rotten tree doesn't bear rotten fruit. A bad tree doesn't bear bad fruit. So what this is literally saying, what it's saying in Ephesians 4.29, let not unwholesome, let no bad words, pas, lagos, sarpas. Do not let bad words proceed from your mouth. Ectu stomatas, humon, out of your mouth. Don't let bad words come out of your mouth. Now, the Holy Spirit is wise enough that he knows, God knows, because he's all-knowing, that every culture that will ever read this, or read a translation of this, as it was written there in Greek, or if we read it in English, English didn't even exist when, when Paul, when this was first breathed forth by the Holy Spirit, the expectation, the Holy Spirit expects you and I to know what bad words are. And if you spend your time trying to justify saying profanity saying sarpas lagos bad words in your preaching or in your writing or or in in what you you do listen please not only is that immature and and silly it's going to distract people from the truth 
people really think, well, I'm gonna, I'm tired of this namby pamby, uh, sissified culture. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a real man and, and cuss once in a while. That is not manhood. Biblically, that's not manhood. Manhood is self-controlled conviction. That's manhood. Now, do we lose control and sin sometimes? Yes, of course. If I if I cursed, if I said pas lagos sarpas ek to stomatas humon, if bad words came out of my mouth in the pulpit, the the thought the thought of using Paul's use of scubula in Philippians chapter three to justify that is absurd. It would be, I need to repent. That was sin to allow bad words. It's a direct commandment. It's, in, it's a, a direct commandment. Do not do this. Don't let bad words come out of your mouth. Now, the prophets and apostles, our Lord, they use real strong imagery. They call Israel a harlot, a prostitute. You know, the old King James, whores. And you lay down with your lovers under every green tree. I mean, they really laid into them. But they weren't using sarpas lagos. They weren't cussing people out. They weren't doing that. And to suggest that they were is nigh unto blasphemy. The Bible has no bad words in it. It has no cussing in it. And God knows that in every culture that would ever exist, that they know exactly what their bad words are. Everyone knows what you should and should not say. And if you want to spend your time trying to dance up to the line there and walk it as close as possible to see if you can get shock value or get people upset at you or whatever, I say, get a life. We got bigger fish to fry than that. We need to, like, how about, for example, let's get the gospel right. Why don't we focus our passion and our energy on that rather than trying to justify yelling profanity from the pulpit? It'd be great if people were offended by the gospel instead of, by the fact that you write articles that, that come real close to cussing or, or maybe do once in a while, cuss or, or whatever. It's right there in scripture. Don't let bad words come out of your mouth. You know, when we were little kids, yeah, so-and-so uses lots of bad words. Everyone knew what that meant. But you see, it's only adults uh, with seminary degrees. Now now we're, we're not sure what bad words are. Yes, we do know what they are. And you know what you should never say. You know what you should never say. And to try to say that there's some parallel between yelling the word, the phrase, bull blank from the pulpit and the way the prophets denounce sin is just ridiculous. It is absolutely absurd. Let people be offended by the gospel. And I'll, I just want to make one more comment about that. One more and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop. <clears throat> Hopefully, if people are going to be offended... They're offended by the gospel. They're offended by the gospel. If you spend your time trying to justify the use of profanity, of bad words, which is what sarpas lagos refers to, and that is not what Paul was doing when he used the word scubula. He was saying, everything I used to trust in is rubbish, it's dung, it's garbage, in comparison to the imputed righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that is from God and is by faith. There's no parallel between Paul's use of scubula and profanity. Okay, none whatsoever. We don't want to be using bad words to try to get shock value and to get people to think that we're cool or whatever. If that's what you spend your time doing, you might as well just stand up and say, I'm not confident that the gospel uh, can, 
convert people and save the lost. I'm just not confident in it. I don't believe in the sufficiency of scripture uh, to have the impact that the Holy Spirit of God wants it to have. My word shall not return to me void. If you spend your time trying to justify the use of saucy language and, you know, sexually suggestive stuff or whatever, we live in a culture that's going to hell in a handbasket here. How about we focus on getting the gospel right and let's be classy and godly and manly in the way that we preach and teach and defend it in public and in private, in our writings. You don't need to smash beer cans on your forehead and dance up to the line of using profanity and using, you know, talking a little saucy and uh, having jalapenos in your article. You don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. The word of God will do it all. The word of God will do it all. As Luther said uh, to someone who asked him, you know, how'd you do this, man? How did you have such a huge impact? He's like, I didn't do a thing. All I did was preach and pray. And while me and Philip Melanchthon and Armstorff drank beer, God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. How? Scripture. Word of God. The gospel. How about we focus on getting that out there? And do it in a forceful way? Do it in a, in a passionate way? I cannot tell you how many times I've been slashed and burned um, by people for having passion. And I'm thinking, how, how do you preach God's word without passion? There was a time I tried to, I tried to like work. I mean, it's, I'm embarrassed to say this. Um, Before I got to Tennessee, I would try to, I purposefully would try to smile more often, (laughs) try to smile more often when I was preaching and try to make it a little bit, a little less light. And someone said, why are you not being yourself anymore? And I said, it was at that moment, I was like, you know what? I don't care anymore. I'm going to preach with passion and, um, and I can do that without cussing or without you know dancing the jig real close to the line you know to to try to sound cool and and everything that is so repulsive to me you might as well just say i don't have confidence in the bible no confidence in the power of christ crucified being preached and taught no no confidence in letting the text do its work i'm not confident that i gotta do something to sound cool or to get shock value or whatever baloney not playing that game never so let's focus on getting the gospel right and getting it out there and preaching it clearly uh, because that's the need of the hour and that's the need of every hour. Thank you all for watching or for listening. This is Pastor Patrick Hines of Bridwell Heights Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can visit us on the web at bridwellheightschurch.com where all the sermons and podcasts are put into our sermon audio feed, which is accessible in iTunes as well as the podcast app. You are welcome to join us any Sunday morning for Sunday school for all ages at 10 a.m. and then worship for everyone at 11 a.m. If you ever have any questions about the Christian faith or the Bible, you can email me at pastor at bridwellheightschurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.